This week on Viewpoints. Teaching is really a calling. Nobody ever said, I'm going to be a teacher and make a whole lot of money. The mental toll of teaching. Then. So often people who need money the most are the ones that do the least desirable jobs. And they're the least desirable jobs because they're the dirtiest and most dangerous work. The toll of being poor in the United States. I'm Marty Peterson. And I'm Gary Price. These stories in-depth this week on your public affairs magazine, Viewpoints. I struggled with symptoms like frequent gas and stomach pain for years. I was bloated all the time with daily diarrhea. At first, I thought it was what I was eating. I kept thinking it was stomach issues. So I did my research and talked to my doctor, and we finally uncovered the truth. It It was was actually EPI. Exocrine pancreatic insufficiency, or EPI, is a condition where your pancreas is unable to help break down your food. It can lead to symptoms like diarrhea, gas, bloating, stomach pain, unexplained weight loss, and oily stools. And EPI symptoms can be confused with those of other common digestive conditions, like irritable bowel syndrome, Crohn's, and celiac disease. So getting to the right diagnosis meant being more open with my doctor about the severity of my symptoms and how often they were happening. But there's good news. EPI is manageable, so don't wait any longer. Use the symptom checker at identifyepi.com and schedule a visit or call with your doctor to ask, Could Could I I have have EPI? EPI? Sponsored by AbbVie. There's no doubt that the last 20 months have been taxing for everyone. The COVID-19 pandemic has seemed to linger on for far longer than most expected, causing unending grief and anxiety. Nearly every industry, from hospitality to healthcare, has been affected in some way. For educators, it's been a roller coaster ride from one day to the next. A teacher's role is not only to teach, but to be a leader, a listener, and often a caretaker. Add on top of this working in an environment where the hours are long, the work is unending, and COVID protocols are still evolving. Administrators and teachers are incredibly stressed right now, unfortunately. There are a lot of different pressures and kind of ever-changing demands. That's Dr. Olga Acosta-Price, an associate professor at the Milken Institute School of Public Health at George Washington University. She's also the director of the Center for Health and Health Care in Schools. Price works with hundreds of public schools in Washington, D.C., and says that for many educators, this year has been more challenging than last. With almost all districts back to in-person schooling, teachers are trying to get their classes caught up from the learning lags of 2020 and are more cognizant of students' mental health. It does require a lot to be present and to be there for your students so regularly, especially given that kids are coming in with heightened and greater emotional demands, physical demands, things going on at home, in their community, that has even intensified the need for those spaces in school. But as teachers take on yet another added role, who's looking out for them? Price argues that responsibility should be more evenly spread out. One of these being an adequate number of on-site school counselors and psychologists for students. There also needs to be a bigger focus on better mental health and self-care resources for teachers. All the things that we really emphasize with students 
that we really also do the same thing and create the same level of support for the teachers and the staff. I think that we have to be very mindful that teachers and administrators themselves have also experienced a great deal of loss, of anxiety, of maybe illness, financial stressors, disruptions of all types, not just in their jobs and in performing their jobs, but in other elements of their life. Many of them also have their own children or their own families or their own parents that they're helping to care for. In fact, thousands of educators have resigned or retired during the pandemic from the added stress and uncertainty. Currently, across the country, many schools are facing widespread teacher shortages, especially in Texas, Tennessee, and New Jersey, according to U.S. News & World Report. Many education experts believe that one way to counter these dwindling numbers is for leaders in schools to provide better support to teachers by truly listening to what they need both in and out of the classroom. My personal opinion is that leadership is top-down and that reflects the attitude and the policies of the leader. That's Sue Gartner, the director of Trinity Church Nursery School in Wilmette, Illinois. TCNS serves children ages two years old through kindergarten. Gartner says that last school year was very challenging for her staff, but they managed to get through it together. What I consistently try to stress to my staff is that we are in the business of supporting families, not just the children, but families. And so that means that we and I am in the business of supporting the staff and their families. And if they need time off, if they need to spend time with a family, if they're not feeling well, or if they have a wonderful reason to celebrate and go out of town, then it is my job to make sure that the class is staffed and we have an appropriate sub and that I do all I can to support my staff families. And in doing so, it's a happy place. The teachers feel valued. They feel respected. In my opinion, it starts with leadership, and it starts with valuing and respecting your staff and giving them everything they need to do an outstanding job. Gardner agrees that this is not the current reality for every educator in America. Some teachers are barely supported or listened to at their schools and are burnt out by the never-ending uphill battle they're facing during the pandemic. She believes that under normal circumstances, teaching is a profession that requires grit and patience. Teaching is really a calling. Nobody ever said, I'm going to be a teacher and make a whole lot of money. Nobody does this job for the money. They do it out of a sense of wanting to help children, wanting to make a difference in this world. It's well known that teaching is a very draining job. One silver lining to the pandemic is that it's put a limelight on the importance of mental health. Price says that there's no reason that this support shouldn't extend into people's workplaces as well. You want it to be an environment where you're doing emotional check-ins with your staff during faculty meetings, during staff meeting, and normalizing that it's okay to find out how people are doing emotionally and then have a source where when you're worried about someone or about yourself that you know where you can go to seek more help 
and that that becomes an open sort of that referral process or those processes become very kind of well-known and well-understood and established and not something to be stigmatized. I think having processes where if somebody is struggling and they need an adjustment to their schedule or they need time off, that there's a way to do so that doesn't jeopardize one's job. Price also adds that designated mental health days can be useful to teachers who are feeling like they need to step back and take a moment. Again, as a way to really normalize that there are just going to be times when, you know, taking a day or two off can do a great deal to allow one to decompress or to come back to center. And again, those are the kinds of things that I know some districts are implementing. Gartner says that TCNS does not have designated mental health days, but she's very generous with paid time off and understands if her teachers need to take a day or two to recharge. What I tell them from the get-go is I never want to turn you into a liar. Do not tell me you're sick if you're not sick. Just use your days for whatever you want. They are your days. So I know teachers take them off to meet friends for lunch or to go downtown or meet their husband or just to hang out at home. We have a professional development day where we all get together and support each other and engage in workshops. And I think that's very helpful, but I believe my teachers know, gosh, I hope they know, that if they need time off, they don't have to explain it to me. Why? At the end of the day, teachers are a vital and valued part of each and every community across the country. Without their dedication, many people would not be where they are today. In order for them to continue to inspire the brightest minds of tomorrow, it's important that we prioritize their mental health today. To find out more about this topic and our guests, Dr. Olga Acosta-Price and Sue Gartner, visit viewpointsradio.org. This segment was written and produced by Amira Zaveri. I'm Gary Price. Coming up, what's it like to live below the poverty line when Viewpoints returns? Welcome to today's Book Minute, brought to you by BookTrib.com, the leading source of book news and reviews. Living in Color is the extraordinary true story of the last six months of the life of Margot Murphy after a nine-year battle with cancer, written by her husband, businessman Mike Murphy. It is a riveting inside look at a love story for the ages, one that men and women dream of but may never experience. The book also provides an unflinching look at the process of dying and how it is possible to die beautifully and to die well. Margot is able to find peace before her last breath. Every family that has been touched with cancer will identify with the scenes in the story, masterfully written like a novel. Every human who longs to love and be loved, to live well and to die well, will be greatly enriched by the story's lessons and deep wisdom. Living in Color is available at bookstores and your favorite sources for books everywhere. I struggled with symptoms like frequent gas and stomach pain for years. I was bloated all the time with daily diarrhea. At first, I thought it was what I was eating. I kept thinking it was stomach issues. So I did my research and talked to my doctor, and we finally uncovered the truth. It, it was, was actually EPI. Exocrine pancreatic insufficiency, or EPI, is a condition where your pancreas is unable to help break down your food. 
it can lead to symptoms like diarrhea, gas, bloating, stomach pain, unexplained weight loss, and oily stools. And EPI symptoms can be confused with those of other common digestive conditions like irritable bowel syndrome, Crohn's, and celiac disease. So getting to the right diagnosis meant being more open with my doctor about the severity of my symptoms and how often they were happening. But there's good news. EPI is manageable, so don't wait any longer. Use the symptom checker at identifyepi.com and schedule a visit or call with your doctor to ask, Could Could I I have have EPI? EPI? Sponsored by AbbVie. Since 2016, much has been made about the divide between urban America and rural America. News pundits and social media users have wondered alike if there is an irreparable divide between the members of these two dramatically different ways of life. American cities and American farmland have so little in common when it comes to the daily grind, political leanings, and their views on money and working hard. In this curiosity has come a boom of books about the residents of rural America. The latest is by author and journalist Sarah Smarsh. So I grew up on a wheat and cattle farm 30 miles west of Wichita. And in some ways, I was a child in the 80s and a teenager in the 90s. And by then, there were some major technological shifts going on in the country. But because of our socioeconomic station, we didn't have any of those things. So I didn't have air conditioning. I didn't have cable television. I didn't have a computer in the house or access to Internet. So in some ways, my upbringing on that farm was more like a 1950s childhood than a 2000s childhood, maybe. Smarsh writes about her upbringing and life in rural America in her book, Heartland, a memoir of working hard and being broke in the richest country on earth. It was actually a pretty beautiful thing. I was a pretty solitary kid by necessity, just our sort of geographic isolation. But I always had animals and nature to interact with. Meanwhile, within the walls of our house, there was all sorts of strife and dysfunction, much of which had to do, in my view, with economic struggle. And so that's part of the story, too. But, you know, it it is an experience, this thing we call rural America, that I actually feel quite privileged to have lived in that it's an increasingly rare experience in urbanized country. Smarsh's book is about growing up on farmland in Kansas, but more than being a book about geography, it's about what it felt like to grow up poor. She says she was inspired to write her memoir because of the way she sees America putting such importance on wealth and status. I can't say that in those moments, let's say as a child qualifying for free school lunches or as a first-generation college student, not knowing what the term graduate school meant when someone talked about applying to graduate school, not having the right clothes and so on. Those are things that I see now looking back that I did feel discomfort, shame, embarrassment. I was not necessarily conscious of that. I wouldn't have necessarily articulated it that way. But the thing is, we live in a society that is full of messages for people who struggle financially that, that you're value and worth is somehow tied to your financial value and worth. And if that's the case in the context of capitalism, then my family and I are pretty worthless. That's, of course, the impetus for this book is to provide a sort of corrective of that deeply ingrained social attitude, I think, that even politically liberal and progressive people, I find, sometimes hold. Smart said it was her experience as a college student that really taught her what a disadvantage being from a poor family living in rural America truly was. 
I was a first-generation college student. I'd already been working as a teenager for years and really also hustling as a student to work hard for the scholarships that I knew would be my only ticket to a college education. So by the time I showed up on campus at age 18, I was already tired. (laughs) And then those years there, double majoring, working to make ends meet, keeping my grades up to maintain the scholarships that paid for my tuition and and all those things as a a financially independent 18-year-old was, you know, while for some of my friends, they might remember college as the most carefree years of their lives. For me, they were really the hardest years of my life. And that's the class divide in this country sort of manifest in my life. Smarsh's book is about much more than having to work her way through college and not having as much fun as her classmates. She says that some members of America's upper class don't recognize the full scope of what it means for others to live in poverty. The most crucial thing to point out would be just the very physical nature of poverty and the dangers, often mortal ones actually, that come with that life. So uh, when I was in second grade, my dad, who was a farmer and a carpenter, still couldn't make ends meet in those two industries for all his hard labor. So he took a side job driving van for a company that basically picked up industrial waste and then disposed of it per whatever laws and regulations. And so he would go around, say, to places that do oil changes and pick up their spent oil and such. And somewhere along the way, you know, nobody knows exactly what happened, but likely one of these uh, businesses that he picked up the chemical waste from had improperly mixed things that weren't supposed to be mixed. And so that was in the back of this van. My dad was driving and the fumes seeped into the cab of the van and, and nearly killed him. So he was in the hospital for weeks and for probably three years after that was in a kind of mental haze. And, you know, this is just being a human being on planet Earth comes with dangers that you can't necessarily escape with money. But so often people who need money the most are the ones that do the least desirable jobs. And they're the least desirable jobs because they're the dirtiest and most dangerous work. Smarsh indicated that there are two particularly destructive causes of the wealth divide in America. First, the way our capitalism can push those living in poverty further out of the fold. No, I'm not a political scientist and I'm not a policy expert, but I do know that deregulation of private industry has basically over the course of my lifetime, I was born in 1980, has led to a country where, okay, perhaps we have smaller government, but in its place we have bigger business that can be just as potent of a force in people's lives and when it's geared toward profit rather than the public good, you have situations like today, a moment of historic Wealth inequality when the CEO of some corporation makes like 3,000 times the salary of the workers on the floor and so on. So that's one piece of the puzzle, I think, that sort of these impenetrable systems that an individual doesn't stand a chance against in many ways. The second main issue Smarsh pointed out was how our health care system often places poor people in positions of disadvantage. Dental care in this country is incredibly difficult to access for people in poverty, and actually the Affordable Care Act that was passed in 2014 as a kind of compromise to the other side of the aisle removed dental policies from that coverage, as though somehow the health of one's teeth is separate from the rest of one's body. And so there are a lot of hardworking people who labor 60 hours a week, then end up with a cavity that goes untreated. And my dad is in this group. He ended up with an infection up into the root that turned into sepsis. So essentially he had blood poisoning 
from what could have been treated originally as a cavity. And so for somebody like my dad, whose teeth don't look like the famous shiny, pearly white, straight teeth of the fame and celebrity that we idolize in this country, let's say that he did everything right according to the American dream. He worked, he's an honest man, and let's say he gets laid off and then he needs to go find another job. He goes into a job interview and because of the person interviewing him holding classist views, essentially, or ideas about my dad's teeth looking like something that they associate with dirty people, he doesn't get the job. And then since he doesn't get the job, he can't afford to get his teeth fixed. While her book explores these issues and more, it's also written with a defiant pride in her childhood. Smarsh says society expects a poor girl from Kansas to feel shame. That's why, she reasons, terms like redneck and white trash are thrown around so pejoratively. But Smarsh says those so-called redneck tendencies led to some of her fondest memories. For instance, the time her grandfather rigged a canoe to a pickup truck and drove the family through the snow for some thrills in a flat area of Kansas. That's a story that, you know, I it has such a special place in my heart. And yet it is something that someone would look at that, let's say the, the portrayal was in a movie, it would be like, oh, there's some rednecks. What a white trash thing to do. I write against those words and those sentiments in the book because really what's going on when people want to get high on the horse about their socioeconomic status as superior to someone else is really just that comes from the same place as any other sort of derogatory term. We as a society have begun, at least, I think, to contend with racial slurs and epithets about women, but we haven't really examined how frequently we use words and language, which are very powerful, that unfairly cut down people just for their poverty. You can learn more about the current state of poverty in the U.S. and our guest, Sarah Smarsh, by visiting viewpointsradio.org. For more behind the scenes, search Viewpoints Radio on Twitter and Facebook. This segment originally aired in October 2018 and was written by Evan Rook. Our executive producer is Amira Zaveri. Studio production by Jason Dickey. I'm Marty Peterson. Viewpoints returns in just a moment. What are you going to do with your old car? You can try selling it, you could junk it, or you can donate it to Heritage for the Blind. Your car will be towed away for free and your donation is tax deductible. Just call 1-800-835-1478. Heritage for the Blind accepts cars, vans, trucks, and boats. It doesn't matter if your vehicle runs or not. It will be towed away for free and you'll be supporting those that need help. Heritage for the Blind is a nonprofit organization that helps the visually impaired live fuller lives. Call right now to donate your car, and as a special thank you, you'll receive a free three-day vacation voucher to over 50 locations. Call Heritage for the Blind right now. Call 1-800-835-1478. Donating is easy, and your vehicle is towed away for free. Plus, you'll get a free vacation voucher for donating. Call now, 1-800-835-1478. That's 1-800-835-1478. Welcome to Culture Crash, where we examine what's new and old in entertainment. 
A few weeks ago, I rewatched The Born Identity for the first time in years after listening to Matt Damon discuss the production of that movie. And he mentioned that they made the movie essentially as a standalone picture. According to Damon, they didn't really know it would be a big hit, so it was something of a surprise when they were all brought back together and made it into a franchise. Watching it through that lens, I realized for the first time that it really does work on its own. For a long time, this is how all kinds of movies were made. With the recent release of No Time to Die, I, like many others, have also been revisiting some Bond titles. And for much of that franchise's existence, they were basically just Adventure of the Week films. You didn't need to follow the arc of James Bond or Jason Bourne. Now we have the MCUification of movie making, where to understand a new Spider-Man movie, you should have intimate knowledge of 20 other movies and a handful of Disney Plus miniseries. And frankly, I find that to be exhausting. The magic of movies is that they are contained. A movie is two or three hours, and then it ends. But now, so many movies seem like mega miniseries installments. All of this is to say that I'm more excited by Matt Reeves' forthcoming movie, The Batman, than I am for any MCU movie or new Avatar installment or whatever. The Batman is reportedly a standalone movie. It's not an origin story or a finale. It's just a movie about a pre-existing Batman. Now, I'm sure the plan is for there to be sequels, but even a series of two or three movies now is a breath of fresh air from the weight of Star Wars Episode Nine and the like. With the Batman, I hope they don't even bother with the origin story that every casual moviegoer has seen time and time again by now. Just let us watch Batman for a few hours and then go on our way. Just let me watch a Bond movie, or a Spider-Man movie, or a Fast and the Furious movie, and then move on with my life. Instead of tracking down all of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies or Terminator movies, sometimes it's easier to just watch something like Inception. It begins, it middles, and it ends. It's a thing of beauty. I'm reaching franchise fatigue, so please give me back standalone movies. I'm Evan Rook. Did you know that United Healthcare helps connect you to doctors and therapists with 24-7 access to virtual care? So I could have therapy from my couch? Yep. Or a doctor appointment from my car? If you wanted to. Wait, you're right. I don't even like when people see me sing in the car. Couch appointment it is. Virtual visits are just one of the ways United Healthcare helps connect you to better health. Learn more at uhc.com. Plan benefits may vary. There's confusion about how to protect yourself from COVID. One thing is certain. Whether or not you're vaccinated, you need an accurate thermometer to check for fever, the leading sign of flu and COVID. Be vigilant and contact your medical provider at the first sign of fever. Don't rely on non-contact thermometers that have no scientific studies. Only the Exergen Temporal Scanner Thermometer has been proven accurate in more than 100 clinical studies. Learn more at exergen.com. 
And that's Viewpoints for this week. Viewpoints is a production of MediaTrax Communications. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram to learn more about upcoming shows. And find a library of past programs on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. Plus, you'll always find previous segments and more information about our guests at viewpointsradio.org. Join us again next week for another edition of Viewpoints. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.